Hello and welcome to the Jobs in Science interview series. I'm Artem Babian. This is episode 5 with Sam Abraham. A few things before we get started. Uh, I'd like to give a really big thank you to UBC's Faculty of Medicine. We are now sponsored by them, or they have given us a grant to continue developing this podcast. So that's really, really kind of reassuring. Uh, It's cool that, you know, someone believes in what you're doing. And, you know, really, me and Andrew are just kind of doing this podcast just because, well, really, we're just having fun. (laughs) I can't really say much more than that. Um, And I I do believe in kind of what we're trying to do is... uh, you know, important talking about science careers and what to do in the future. Me and Andrew have been working quite hard on social media and stuff. So we have a Twitter account, we have a Facebook account, and pretty much when I should be doing research, I'm updating those. So check those out. You can find them on our website. It's kind of a lot of fun. Uh, You know, if you have some time, shoot me a tweet or whatnot, or uh, send me a message on Facebook um and you know we, we can chat let me know what you think of the show kind of curious what people's opinions are uh, me and andy have been talking quite a bit about different formats and, and where we want to go with this so stay tuned for the next kind of coming episodes as well they're uh, they're going to change a little bit andrew's going to be doing the next interview so that one should be really exciting i have a good idea of what it's what it's about and stuff so uh, stay tuned, that should be out in a couple of weeks. So, Sam Abraham. Well, I met Sam Abraham. You can't really miss him. He's a, he's a really big guy and he has a really crazy beard. And he's just really friendly. So we met in an elevator in BC Cancer. So... I was just going somewhere and he kind of casually asked me about my research, which was kind of weird because, um, you know, a suit asking a graduate student about research isn't something that happens every day. But, you know, he he had a very genuine interest in it and we chatted about research for a long time. And then later I found out that he's the vice president of research for the building, so it kind of made sense. And I, I really kind of get the vibe that, you know, he's... He is a researcher at heart and a scientist that I think has not changed. But to be honest, I have no idea what he did as VP of research. And his other titles are VP Strategic Relationships, Executive Lead for Business and IP Development. And they sound very important, yes, but I I had no idea what they were. And that's kind of why I was very interested to do this interview is to to hear what it is to be an executive of something like BC Cancer Agency. I'm not sure if I fully understand kind of everything uh, that he does, but, you know, uh, I get a sense that it's it's really just about kind of bringing people together. But, you know, don't take my word for it. Listen to what he has to say. that's what we can start off with to okay. kind of get everything going. Um, so first I'd like to ask you what are your job titles and what do you do on the 14th floor? Okay. Well the uh, 
oldest job title I've held is the Vice President Strategic Relations, uh, which was a job that really was meant to convey that this is the person who's going to do the work of dealing with outside entities, meaning pharma, small companies, other institutions. And so I started there probably in about uh, 2000 as the as Assistant Director to the Office of Technology Development. And then somewhere in between, um, uh, sorry, that was as Director, and then somewhere in between they advertised for the position of somebody to be the VP External. I think at about 2003, 2004, I applied for it. And they were surprised that we had already done what they asked the job description to do, so I got the job. <laughs> uh, and what the job entailed was really bringing industry partnerships in. So that was around 2003, 2004. Then uh, we went through, as many of you know, a succession of uh, presidents of the Cancer Agency, uh, from the point of which Simon Sutcliffe left to several interims, David Levy in between, uh, Max Compass, and then finally now Malcolm Moore. Uh, and, and just to put a plug, I have to tell you, I have not been more hopeful in the last 12 years than I am now with his arrival. So there's my bias for you. Um, I also hold the title within PHSA as lead something or other business development or business something. And really that reflects the fact that um, PHSA looked at the Office of Technology Development, which when we started in 2000, there was a quote by a well-known lawyer in town who said, there is no intellectual property at the cancer agency. Well, we went through a process over from about 2000 to where we are now, where not only did we change people's minds about what intellectual property was, but what it should, could be if they actually took things further down the line. We now have, by an independent group that has looked uh, across the country, the highest rate of intellectual property per capita of any institution, and this includes uh, McGill, Queens, UVC, etc. So we've done very well, and we've done well because we actually caused it to become a singular focus on cancer. So that's it. I think I covered all three bases. Yeah, I think, yeah, those are the three ones that yeah. I have. So what do you mean by, like, intellectual property development, like, from, you know, what does this cover? And so somebody could, for example, find that uh, they've got a, what they believe to be a putative target for a particular form of lymphoma. Typically, they would say, well, that's my job, it's done, I've, I've published on it. What we do is we come back and say, well, would you be interested in applying for a proof of principle grant? And we've got other people over here who've got these skill sets and these models where we can put something together and actually demonstrate that it actually has uh, the veracity of the claims you've put out in your publication. So the proof of principle grant then allows them to actually say, yeah, look, we, we, we cured that lymphoma when transplanted into this mouse slide, uh, and that's great. So the next thing is, well, is that a, a useful a moiety as a drug? Mm. Uh, we might bring CDRD into the picture, and they have a pipeline of small molecules that they can use different scaffolds for to ascertain whether or not it will bind that. And they have the medicinal chemistry that will actually say, yeah, this is actually a good uh, drug target, no, sorry, not drug target, but a good moiety to become a drug. And there are various criteria that they look at. And so then you have the build-up, if you like, over a period of time of something that now has a likely to have the interest of a, of a licensee, a licensor, rather. 
and uh, that could be a small company that wants to be either mm -hmm. created around this, it could be an existing company uh, that's in the Lower Mainland, or it could be a pharma company, we've done all of the above. So what are some examples of things that have been developed at BC Cancer? So our most recent and remarkably successful is a company called ESSA, and it came out of work being done by uh, Dr. Marianne Sadar, where if you know about prostate cancer, eventually it develops into a form uh, that is no longer uh, hormone responsive. You use a hormone blockade, well that no longer works. It becomes non-responsive because the N-terminus portion of the androgen receptor gets further truncated and is no longer seen by the androgen uh, blockade. So it actually gets translocated into the nucleus. This particular development of hers allows for the N-terminus to still be recognized in spite of this modification and neutralized within the nucleus. So now we have a treatment for people that right up to this point have not had a treatment. How long was it from like publication to treatment in patients? Ooh. Now you're testing memory banks, that's a different <laughs> story. Uh, I'm going to say that Marianne probably had uh, initial findings back in 2005, uh, roughly. I know that we spun out the company in about 2009. They are now in this quarter about to recruit patients into trials. So a fairly rapid turnaround for a pharmaceutical development. Yeah. yeah. So how like these companies that get made, who is you know who's fine, who's the CEO of a company like? So we we went like, out actually and and looked for the appropriate people to bring in. So in the okay. case of um, uh, Mary Ann's company, we brought in Bob uh, Ryder, and Bob had experience in in developing companies, and it's also about chemistry. So if I take Essa and not Essa, Aquinox, we tried three people, four people before the founders found somebody they were comfortable with. In that case, it was David May. So chemistry is important. Uh, you can get somebody who comes in, and a lot of CEOs come in and say, okay, I'm in charge now. Everybody backs off. You do what I say. Well, that's not going to work, especially when you've got a fairly early stage of something being developed. You need to actually work with the scientists to actually understand fully uh, what they're looking for. Um, Are it's, you on the hiring boards for these CEOs? No. no. no we just bring them in. We tempt them. <laughs> Uh, David Main took three months of kicking the tires before he decided he wanted to do this, and he came out of retirement to do this, and he's actually very happy he did. And are these mostly uh, like business background people, like MBAs, or is it PhDs that then went into business? There have, there have been some who are PhDs who've done very well, uh, who've taken that uh, tangent, but these are typically people who've just done this before and have learned by rote and by rote what to do, and. Uh, they also have a Rolodex that enables them to go after the appropriate people with deep pockets. Um, so that also helps. And we know some of those people. So, for example, uh, one of them uh, used to head up uh, StressGen. Mm -hmm. And while he is, again, quasi-retired, we reach out and tap him on the shoulder and get him to talk to David Main or to talk to the other. And before you know it, he's on the board and he's investing. So it helps. So, like, I, I don't know if everyone's really clear, but can you explain a bit of the difference between the Cancer Agency and the Cancer Foundation? And, like, you work for both because you're a board member for the foundation? So, I'm uh, what they would call a non-independent board member. Yeah. So, I'm a board member by virtue of the fact that I work here at the agency. Uh, the BC Cancer Foundation uh, has a history with the agency going back a long ways. Uh, when the agency was formulated uh, back in the day, we had the worst outcomes in the country. That's something that isn't w widely known. 
back in the day, BC was not the place you wanted to be if you had cancer of any form. What years was this? This would have been 45 to 50 years ago. Um, So the government of the day decided, and they they all sat around and chewed the fat for a while and looked at different models. They said, okay, we're going to create the BC Cancer Agency, and it's going to be the standalone entity. And then they made a mistake. Actually, it was a good mistake. Seldom happens because it hasn't reproduced anywhere else in the country. The thing that made the BC Cancer Agency very strong and very capable, basically allowed it to move very rapidly to being the best in the country, was the fact that they allowed us to be not only the single entity to provide chemo and radiation throughout the province for every single patient, but also made it clear that we had this cancer registry upon which we collect data against the patients we treat. So suddenly, if you have data that you're collecting back, you're able to look at your protocols and say, what's working, what's not? We have 13 tumor groups, 10 and 3, that cover the whole province, which means that the protocols they set up for Vancouver are used in Prince George, are used in Kelowna, are used in Abbotsford. So there's no disparity. And in the host hospitals at different sites, because something like 50% of the chemo delivered is delivered in host hospitals, have to follow our protocols in order for us to reimburse against those drugs. So if you want to create a standard across a place, that becomes a powerful lever. Ontario has five fiefdoms, I call them. They don't agree with each other as to whose approach is better. And so for the longest time, the reason we were better than Ontario, which spent more money per capita than we were, was because we had a standard that we could actually gauge things against, and they didn't. So they've changed their tact, and now they're actually catching up, and if not at par. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have because it allows us to see if new modalities are actually better than existing modalities. Can I just ask, have there been any attempts to broaden that approach to other provinces, or has it always been the BC? Uh, Yes, with little success. I mean, next province next to us is is obvious. Calgary and Edmonton uh, have a rivalry going back with their hockey teams. They still don't look see eye to eye. They're still trying to overcome the fact that they're a province. Um, We're a funny country in a way. It's almost comical. When I first was involved in setting up uh, tumor tissue repository and we had CTRnet, which is the Canadian National Tumor Repository Network. We met all the way out east in a little place on the water in Nova Scotia. St. Andrews by the Sea, I think it was called. Anyway, we were all gathered there. Every single province was represented. And then there were a number of jokes that came out of the whole thing that were actually quite true. Um, Princess Margaret came with its own representative, so we gave them provincial status. Uh, the have-not provinces didn't sat together, didn't want to talk to us. They were very suspicious. They didn't put their hands up. Um, Edmonton and Calgary sat far away from each other. <laughs> Everything that we talk about is, as the comic side of our politics was true. There was a lady from Quebec who said, stood up and said, this organization doesn't represent us. <laughs> and uh, and, and she, we said, but Pierre so-and-so is, is a member. And she says, which one? We have two with the same name. Fortunately, apparently, we had the right one, so then she was happy. But we, we, uh, we play out all of our cartoons in our own way and satisfy our own opinions of each other. So it's a, it's a funny country, but you know what? 
doing okay. <laughs> so what is it like? I still don't have a good conception of what your you know your business day is like. Like, what do you do? As VP research, I think my biggest uh, issue on a daily, weekly, monthly, hourly, minutely basis is people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, satisfying all kinds of things that make people, you know, get happy, get sad. How much they get paid? When was this happening? When? When? Why wasn't I invited? Uh, so and so has got. Anyway, it, it's it's all about managing people, and it's. An interesting dynamic. I'm reasonable at it, mostly because I just shut up and listen, uh, and then formulate carefully what I think. Occasionally, I've erupted. It hasn't been very good, and it seldom is. But I work with a very, very, typically a very bright group of people, all of whom have extraordinary views of the world, and uh, uh, you need to accommodate them. And when you bring them all into a room, there's no shortage of opinion, so just managing that. So, do you, would you define yourself as like a scientist? <laughs> um, I am a scientist, uh, geneticist by training. Yeah. Um, I think at this point in my life, I would suggest that I'm more of a, not so much an administrator because I have an administrative team that looks after that. I just manage people and make sure that this organization continues to go in a direction. So for example, uh, we've just had the Clinician Investigator Awards uh, publicized and uh, we've had 10 applicants and we've proceeded to go ahead with roughly half of that to the next round. Uh, One of the things you have to do, and I've taken it on as a sincere piece of what I believe in, is to go and meet with the ones who weren't successful because it's important not only to continue to build their enthusiasm, but to find out how best to build them in the context of existing teams. Uh, and I've got three such linkages now on the go as of Friday. So bringing people together is a part of what I do. These people will then be the part of the next application again and a stronger application. And really that's what I want and what's what we need. You know, I get criticized for doing the Clinician Investigator Awards because somebody said to me, well, that's a lot of money that you're spending on a clinician to do science. It's $150,000 a year for five years, per year for five years. And a number of scientists will say, I don't get paid that much. You're paying them for half their time. The truth is it's not even half their time. The fact of the matter is what we're trying to do, we're not another department out of UBC. We're here to actually cause changes to happen across the street in a very meaningful way. If you want to translate the things that you're doing, you do need to have clinical involvement. If they're not involved or not infected with your ideas, your science, chances of translating anything next door are next to none. So one of the most successful programs we've had that has brought in a huge number of clinicians is the POM program. And it's not the only one, but it's in terms of numbers all at once. It's causing clinicians to see their patients differently. It's causing clinicians to have hope, never mind the patients. Because if you take the, the stat that is a true stat, even to this day, we treat to any effectiveness globally in all of the Western world, roughly 30% of our patients with any rate of success. We fail roughly 70% of them. We do this 
not because we're mean, nasty, and not providing adequate. It was because we don't have the tools. It's because most of the people who come with us to, to us with cancer have had it for 10, 15, 20 years sometimes. And the horses are well out of the barn before they have symptoms that we can actually do anything about. So we need to get better at predicting whom. We need to get better at what happens to disease when you do treat it, which is where genomics and other uh, systems come in to actually help us do the Gretzky thing, know where the puck's going to go and get there ahead of time. We need to, to engage ourselves with different ways of seeing our patients and, and uh, even preventing this disease. And there's a lot that we can do even in that arena alone. Well, it sounds, sounds like you found like quite a niche in, in being right on that bridge between getting like scientists and clinicians together and finding a way of making things translate. Hopefully. Occasionally yeah. there's a lynch mob or two, but <laughs> typically I avoid those. Yeah. Did you want to be a scientist like when you were a kid? Was that something that you aspired to? Strangely enough, yes. Um, but not in this area. I was geneticist in the making all along. I used to breed fish a particular type of fish called an astronautus ocelletus, translation into a common name, Oscar. I used to breed them. I used to breed a bunch of other different kinds of fish. But my more uh, fascinating piece was breeding uh, German shepherds, which I still have, and could always tell which female gave rise to which litter because of certain traits and behavior that were very much tied to the female more than the male. And later on in life, I became aware of this phenomenon of imprinting uh, which happened in certain dogs that we got from a local breeder here. And it turns out some of them would arch their backs and do funny things that I thought a cat would do. Well, the breeder had a small group of cats that lived out in the barns, and some of them would get along really well with the dogs. So these bloody dogs imprinted on the cats, and I had dogs behaving like cats. So I began to realize that the reason they had behavior similar to their mothers was because they were imprinted uh, at a, a very early stage. So. Just a fascinating piece of dog psychology. And where did you grow up? Uh, Malaysia. Malaysia. Born, and, born and raised in Malaysia. Yeah. Um, anybody from Malaysia? There you go. Um, Malaysia, when I grew up, the um, mode of communication was English. Uh, it began to change off into Malay when uh, my brother, was, who was four years younger than me, was in school. They began to bring Malay in. Uh, our particular group was... Um, Sri Lankan Tamils. Uh, we were seen at one point in a publication as Jews of the East. Malaysia is a very pro-Malay, pro-Muslim country, and we were neither. So it was time to get out of Dodge, and we left. Um, and no, I'm not Jewish, and <laughs> yes, we are from the East. So, but we're South Indian by descent. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then, what year roughly did you come over? I came over uh, January 28th, 1978. How's that for? Roughly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have the time now. How old were you? I was 18. 18 plus, yeah. yeah. And then? I had a full head of hair. <laughs> no beard. It was a while ago then. Yeah, yeah. Actually, not yeah. dissimilar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just you wait. Yeah. Um, and then you went to SFU, right? Yes. How, like, I guess you already had an interest in biology, it sounds like. Yeah, I did. I went through SFU. I actually ended up with the, what we call the David Bailey suite of labs. Uh, anybody know David Bailey? Yeah. So it was David Bailey, Barry Honda, Mike Smith. Uh, There's a bunch of people, Beckenbach. Um, and it was a great group of people to get in with. Uh, they, they, their religion was science. You didn't take holidays. 
you went off on conferences together. Everybody worked around the clock, weekends included. And uh, it was a fascinating way to learn about science. We learned uh, there was a fellow by the name of um, Jeff Hewitt. Jeff was this incredible technician. Uh, we derived our own NIC translation kits from scratch for labeling DNA randomly, but we got them from scratch by extracting the polymerases, etc., out of the bugs, even some of our uh, restriction enzymes. It was all very much hands-on. You looked at your different batches of enzymes and gave them different grades according to how well they cut and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but Jeff would stop you in the middle of any procedure and say, okay, what does this step do? And if you shrugged and didn't know, you were just following it like a cookbook, he made you throw it all away and start again. So you learned very quickly that you needed to know what you were doing. So and you, you were an undergrad at this time. You were an undergrad at this time. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a cool way of learning about the kind of stuff we were getting into. And then you went into medical genetics? No, you have a master's between there, right? Yeah, I, I joined up with Keith Humphreys. He was here. I was yeah. stealing equipment from a defunct unit at the time. So Keith kept saying he was going to get arrested. He didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Um, Maybe I'll edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. The, the, the unit was defunct. The equipment was sitting there. Now I have a particular moral compass, and it says that people raise money for this. And as far as I'm concerned, it bloody well gets used. Yeah, so I did. And, I think that's uh, pretty fair. You can publish that. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, if stuff is sitting around not doing what it's supposed to, that's the biggest sin. So use it, just like your skill sets, etc. Anyway, so um, did my master's with Keith, and then went off into UBC to do the math side of genetics, and was doing all right, except they wouldn't fund us, even though I came up with a project that got very highly rated, because the the way they worded it was the uh, the PI in this case it was Ray, An uh, Ray Anderson was not um, seen as a lab person so they couldn't put the money behind him so I it was a, like a dry lab project it's a dry lab project except we did have to do some um, DNA analysis this this was looking at heritability of traits this is where you come to the realization that most of the traits we're looking at across the street or that any of us have uh, as a consequence of our own inheritance are multigenic traits. And the question becomes, how heritable is a trait? And that really comes down to how closely linked the genes are, how many genes are involved. And then we use the math to sort of try to decipher exactly how heritable a trait is. And we use this in animal populations to select on various traits, so in, in cattle, uh, we do a, a very perverse kind of selection. We select on uh, milk production and protein in milk production by looking at the sires through their daughters. So it's because it takes a long time to look at one female and its offspring. It's easier to look at one sire and its offspring, the female offspring, by virtue of how well they perform, right? So it's a little bit of a perversion of the, the uh, the, the whole system, but in fact it's the best, the fastest way to select on a trait. Um, but even there we quickly learn that the things that we can do mathematically, we don't always get the right thing. So we were doing this with a herd of dairy cattle and improved the protein production, for example, by 20%, then it sort of plateaued. And 
you know, couldn't do anything else, so we said, well, that's the best you can get. A particular herd was left alone for five years, and somebody came back and did the selection again and found they could improve on it once more, even beyond that. So in our selection, we had caused, we had skewed the genetics in a direction and left behind some important genes that were also required for general health and well-being, which over a five-generation period independently sorted before you could again pull on a trait. So even our math and our belief in what we were doing fell short of the biology by a long shot. You're only ever modeling it with math, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, that's but it's still, it's, it still gave us a, a tremendous tool that was able to change industry standards on a variety of things. But this sounds like, like what you went into your PhD is very similar to what you did as you know, a, a younger, like as a boy with breeding <laughs> dogs and stuff. Yep. So it, it really was a continuation of your passion, it sounds like. Yep. Did you have a career in mind going into your PhD? No, I, I had always, um, I mean, I look at you, all of you, and you represent the main reason for my getting into genetics. Uh, in my family, there are people with gray eyes and occasional one or two lesser frequency with green. And if you go further north into India, you get people who are considerably fairer and in some provinces even blonde. So I was intrigued by the heterogeneity and had question marks about most of it. And then I began to read all kinds of books on the movements of people. Um, and so now 23andMe is fulfilling my wildest dreams because it's telling everybody that they, we are all, in fact, this wonderful admixture of all kinds of people that moved hither and yon. If you ever get a chance, one fascinating series of books to put together is um, Attila the Hun was a Mongol. He came out over hundreds of years before he started creating havoc. When he started creating havoc, he caused different tribes to basically form different allegiances to basically help him fight the Romans on both sides of the equation. Now, in doing this, what he didn't know was he was setting up the basis of Europe. In fact, if you go read a book by Anne Macmillan entitled Paris 1919, which is where Treaty of Versailles was being negotiated, you will find almost identical in nature the groups that were set up by Attila the Hun <laughs> uh, present at the table at Paris 1919. We don't change much. So it sounds like you really have like a passion for genetics, like really core inheritance and yeah, mathematics, I think, I think quantitative we, genetics. We are the experiment. Yeah. And, and as much as we all charge around saying we're unique. So <laughs> where did you go do your postdoc? And then uh, postdoc was with Jerry Weeks. I was looking at uh, Dictostelium. Uh, Dicti is an interesting organism. It's um, I don't, how many know what Dictostelium is? Someone in the audience chimes in, says it's slime mold. Yeah, but it's um, an interesting creature because it's unicellular, it's an amoeba, until it runs out of food, then it sends a signal and it forms this worm that wanders off in search of more food. So it becomes multicellular, and it has a very conservative way of expressing, expressing its uh, genes when it needs them. It has a vegetative... Uh, stage and it has this, um, uh, how should I call, uh, differentiating stage if you like, and very different cassettes of genes are turned on. So it's a very unique beast to use if you're trying to study signal transduction. In most cell lines you have everything present all the time and uh, it's very hard to sometimes dis discern whether you've pulled down the right thing, the wrong thing or something that happened to be hanging around.
So how did you go from, like, again, this sounds like it's quite basic biology. How did you go from that into a pharmaceutical? I think you have <laughs> Inflazyme is like the next place that you went. Yeah. What was that transition like? Okay. Um, and Jerry will bear this out if you, if you publish this with him. Um, he offered me a technician who was going to get paid 30-odd thousand. I was getting paid at the time as a postdoc 21,000. I had two children and had just bought an apartment with my wife who, by the way, was I met here. She was a med lab tech working up at Terry Fox. So she looked after me for 10 years, um, and I was wanting to earn a little bit more now as a postdoc. Um, the department, or Jerry, basically said, can't do that. And I, I basically said, forget the technician. Give me half of what you're going to give the technician. I'll just work around the clock, which I was already doing. I was just going to continue find a 24-hour <laughs> clock. Um, and the reason he wanted to give me a tech was we were having some really exciting findings, and I can go into that some other time, but basic story is that RAS was not just an on-off switch, it was also an and-or switch, depending on whether it was differentiation versus vegetative growth, and RAS GDP in our hands was a signaling moiety. Um, and so I got a hold of people like Julian Downward, who was in the field, Frank McCormick, and they liked the idea, and so I wanted to explore it further, but Anyway, bottom line was, along comes a company and offers me considerably more. I've got a mortgage, I've got two kids, and well, yeah, I, long story short, I went for the company. And that was well, not long story short. Like, this is kind of yeah. one of the most yes. important things, I think. <laughs> what do you mean, like, company came and offered? Like, yeah. So the company So there were connections that I had. Um, uh, this, this actually came through Vince Duronio who's still down at uh, the Jack Bell. Sorry? Is that you are? Well, he'll tell you this. He came, he came, knock, he came knocking at my door and said, Sam, uh, this, this company is interested in expanding uh, its work in certain areas of signaling. Would you be interested in coming along? I took three months to decide about it because I really had a view of just staying on the academic side. I had no view ever of going to the industry side. So three months uh, and yeah, it became obvious that I needed to bring home a little bit more, and I did. And uh, so, so, what were some of the barriers from continuing on and like applying to be a PI? Too early in the stage. I just started a postdoc. You were uh, like one year in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was a little longer than tooth than most, just because I'd taken enough time. I, I had. I wouldn't say I was without ambition. I just enjoyed being a student <laughs> when I was at SFU. I had enough for three. Minors and a major, right? Um, and then uh, again, uh, prior to meeting my wife, I was happy as a clam working in Keith's lab. Then I met my wife. It's not that she pushed me, but it's more that I began to feel that there was something else I needed to, to kind of wake up and focus on. And then the arrival of kids, that really twists your head right around. By the way, Anybody contemplating kids, I can tell you, it's the best damn thing I ever did. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was uh, Inflazyme. But, you know, companies are a, a beast, especially as, uh, early stage companies. You often hear people talk about how companies are driven to a particular agenda. Well, you know what? They have the same politics that runs through them as you might have in a lab of any description and type. So we had issues there as well. And 
eventually the company and I parted company because uh, they became very product focused and I was not. I was into the research side of it. Uh, we in fact had programs that uh, the science board of the company said should become the focus, but the company didn't want to go there. So there needed to be a separation and at about the same time, Cancer Agency was looking for somebody to look at establishing um, uh, a really concrete foundation to uh, uh, an office of technology development. And uh, So what did that hiring process look like? Nothing you could imagine. Uh, around the time there was a notion to set up a group called Genius Life Sciences. This was by some highly uh, influential people in the local environment who were going to come in, put down some money, help establish the office, but then try to create receptors for technologies that would come out of here. Well, that turned out to be um, remarkably problematic because the group also wanted to control what went on within the agency. And I remember sitting at a research executive meeting one day looking through the paper that they'd put together and I'd been here for a couple of months and there inside was this thing that said, hmm, the agency will not change any of its procedures, protocols, etc., without the permission of Genius Life Sciences. And I said, guys, never mind the shares you get in this company as a consequence of doing this. You've just abdicated control of the BC Cancer Agency. It hadn't been signed, and it hadn't been read, more importantly. And so now things came to a grinding halt. Anyway, Genius Life Sciences didn't last very long. They did try to get me fired for doing that. That didn't succeed. Um, and I continued on with the agency and then basically became the director of the office. Was it like an attempt to privatize BC Cancer? No, it was more an attempt to ensure that they had full rights to anything anybody at the cancer agency developed. Like intellectual property? Intellectual was. property. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've learned is you never end up in this kind of scenario working with one moiety. You can't have Pfizer show up, even with $100 million, and grab everything everybody gets to do. You need to have multiple partners because there are multiple indications you need to go up against. There are. Let, let me give you a philosophical view of why I, I, see, I see this and say this. When genomics was becoming a, a thing, I developed policy, and the policy basically said we would not cause a gene to be patented, and if we did cause a patent, nobody could have it exclusively. And the reason for that is that, going back to my earlier comment about traits, they're multigenic. Whether it's across the street or in some other disease indication, they are in the, the multiple genes that are involved, multiple lesions in a tumor that are involved, and ultimately you need access to all of them in order to create the algorithm that interprets how to see that patient. So giving any bit of it away is like giving away the letter A or I or full stop in, in the English language. Mm -hmm. You basically can't write a proper sentence. You can't do a proper analysis. And that just doesn't make any sense. So philosophically, we created this policy to allow only non-exclusive access, notwithstanding that people can come up with their own algorithms, etc. They could not own the things that we mined and came up with. So you mean like targets and oncogenic mutations and things like the PCR tests for you, like BRCA? You can, you can own a target insofar as your um, molecule binds to it, yeah. um, and you're using that as part of your assay. 
but you may not own it by prohibiting somebody else from using that target as part of their assay system or as part of their diagnostic or prognostic. How, like, how often does that occur in the field that people will try to well, In the past it occurred all the time. Now, now it's less of a, uh, an issue, partially because, uh, especially in the diagnostic space, um, most patents are around the methodology that you use, which frequently involves uh, amplification of whatever it is you're looking for. Most technologies speak to the assay methodology as part of their patent claims. Um, with deep sequencing, you don't have to do any of that, so you actually get around all of this. And the consequence is a lot of their patents are actually not worth very much. Mm. And so how, like, what's patentable now? Like, where do you guys focus on? Um, again, algorithms are useful. People can use them, uh, improve upon them themselves. Um, uh, if you, for example, when, you, when SARS came out and we had a sequence out of here, we put ourselves together with um, several groups internationally and created a patent pool. Nobody could own the pool. Everybody could have access to it. And what that did was, as an example, they got access to it non-exclusively, but if they developed a vaccine, that vaccine was theirs exclusively. So the product was what they walked away with. The information and the underlying elements, not so. Mm -hmm. And so again, philosophically, that I think is the right thing to do. Uh, the opposite happened as an example with hepatitis C, and I think it was Chiron Corporation. They owned it because it was given to them by, I think it might have been uh, CDC in the States. Yeah. And for 18 years, they sued anybody who tried to develop anything on hep C, 18 years. We had stuff ready to go into the clinic if SARS came back within a year and a half. So it goes to show you, if the office is created to actually cause the promotion of something if into the clinic, the wrong thing to do sometimes is to give it away exclusively, right? But I mean, that's what these companies, like morally that's their obligation, right? To make money. Uh, that's a funny way of putting morality. <laughs> um, they have a, 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 what do you call this? Uh, an obligation to their, their shareholders, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So I wouldn't go morally, an obligation, absolutely. But I think you can achieve that obligation in this kind of a system. Uh, I mean, our uh, thing around genomics got enough attention, especially when it got through to uh, the example of SARS, that uh, we got invited to the OECD both in Paris and in Washington to talk about our example. And the OECD endorsed our example and actually has made it, in fact, part and parcel of their view uh, of what their recommendations are. So came out of here. But, but do you think like that's because it came out of here? It came out of this type of research institute versus, you know, a company where I think it is because it was shown to work. Yeah. Especially around SARS, uh, Australian Law Review wrote up what we'd done in SARS um, and said perhaps this is the better way of actually approaching things. Otherwise, you'd have had this um, this bun fight over who owns what for something that could very well come back and, and uh, cause a lot of damage. And the urgency was getting it out there. How does this IP differ from the IP that you were talking about earlier? So the intellectual property I'm talking about has not to do with individual genes or anything of that sort. It has to do with devices. It has to do with um, small molecules. It has to do with antibodies that are potentially therapeutic. So it's 
something of the end product that they can take to market themselves, but it takes a lot to develop. But the underlying information behind it, that's not what we give away. Is that considered still to be intellectual property? It is, and we still do get some pushback from companies, but we, you know, we start with a series of principles with any negotiation. The principles are stated up front, and we look at them all, and they typically all nod and say, this is great. Then we come back with the contract language, and we go back to them and say, well, see, principle B? <laughs> that, that, that sentence violates principle B. It's actually a very useful way to do contact, contract negotiation. Mm. Is that published somewhere? Sure, I, could, I don't know if it's published, but we can uh, certainly give you examples of what we've used when talking to companies like Takeda um, and, uh, yeah, and others, Amgen, you name it. I can grab that too and I'll yep. post it up with, uh, yep. along with the podcast. Yeah. 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 Um, as someone who's about to defend in like six months, <laughs> I just want to ask about like current job status in Vancouver specifically because yeah. I love this city. Um, so specifically with biotech, I mean, I've read some articles that say Vancouver's kind of like a hub, but my own personal impression is that this is kind of a place where companies uh, start and then die or are bought out and relocated. So am I correct in that? For the, most, for the most part, you are correct in that. Uh, we do have a number of early stage companies, some of which are hoping to stay on longer. I think with time and it's, it's a numbers game. Eventually, we're going to have, if we put a lot of efforts into this, we're going to have enough companies on the ground that some of them are going to stay. We do have, for example, Amgen North. Uh, is it Amgen now? Yes, it is Amgen. It started out as a spin-off company out of John Schrader's lab where I did my PhD. Uh, it was Ingenix, SLAM technology, that gave rise to the ability to raise antibodies minus the mouse, right? Uh, then, so it went from Ingenix to Amgenix and Abgenix to Amgen. They've maintained a presence in Burnaby and still produce roughly 65 to 75% of the pipeline for Amgen. Yeah. So some do stay. And I know a lot of companies will use things like Mitax or CDRB. Yep. Um, are there any other entities like that through which companies can do contract work with academic labs? Yeah, there is uh, another company, but it's not so much doing things by contract. They're actually running out they're in the old QLT building, uh, and they're setting up themselves, I think, out east it's biologics, and here it's small molecules. Uh, Versante? Versant? Yeah. Um, and so they, we, we've got information on them as well, if you're interested. So they're, they're quite a sizable operation here. Can I ask one more? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Um, your comment about getting clinicians particularly interested in the basic science really stuck out and I'm very familiar with the medical science liaison positions with pharmaceutical companies, and that's something that I'm really attracted to, yes. like science communication and, frankly, getting away from the bench. Um, outside of that industrial role like that, are there jobs within a, an agency like this where you would be meeting with clinicians and trying to communicate that science and, and teaching them how to you know, stratify patient samples I guess some of the project managers uh, involved, the GSC and other, other groups here, do a little bit of that. And then the Technology Development Office, uh, that would be at one point myself, but these days Patrick Repstein and, and Ron Lorna, who have a depth of the knowledge of the science that's coming through, and trying to engage uh, certain physicians uh, in their view of the science, particularly as it comes to discussions around 
the model systems to go up against. So Karen Gelman, for example, uh, with Marcel Bally has a good idea as to what are the sort of gold standard models that something has to work against in order to be even given the time of day by, by Karen for the next step of development. So those become important individuals to talk to because they are well aware of what's undergoing development as new drugs globally. What skills during your PhD and postdoc did you think you learned that you now use and are important in your job? Oh, I know I'm going to regret this. Um, I think the, 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 the biggest skill that any one of us has to develop, and I was doing this for a while and maybe I'll start it again, is the ability to communicate. I, you know, we, we talk about this in the context of um, the five-minute elevator pitch, and so I actually started doing that in the elevator, trying to get people to tell me who they are, what they do, and why it's important. Before you get off the elevator, you tell me those three things. You'd be surprised how difficult that is for some. For others, it's not so difficult, and yet for another group, they go, I'll tell you, but you have to tell me who you are first. <laughs> So I've done that too. Um, but communication is, I think, the, probably the, the, the most uh, valuable asset that comes with your ability to speak to science. But it, your ability to communicate your science is, is second to none because not only have you to talk to uh, a lay audience from time to time, you have to talk to um, people with money. <laughs> you have to talk to... You have to talk to your, your peers in a way that is convincing as to why this approach and not another. I've been in audiences where um, we've had a few clinicians and, and, and some of our scientists present, and they were just horrible. All they could do is delve down into the technical things that, that, that they, they were planning to do. And the lay audience that was there to support them and to put monies into their project was just sort of left, I don't get it. So your, your job is twofold, not only to dig down and, and get, get your science to where you want it to be, but to also be able to tell a story, and a really good story, about why it's important. Well, remember the faces that people hear, and then you can, you can bug them in the elevator again. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> it's easier for you to remember my face. Um, so what, what do you wish... Like I mean, we, you talked about science communication, but what do you wish you learned during your PhD uh, that would help you more today? I wish, at, when doing my PhD, that I was a little uh, more, how should I say, daring in what I was undertaking. I tended to be a little conservative with regards to some of the experiments I undertook. Um, thinking back now to what I was doing, I, I could have done a number of other things, one of which I started as a flyer. So, for example... I was expressing um, antibodies to RAS to the switch one domain intracellularly, and I could show that it was working insofar as it's binding. I then put a meristylation uh, sequence on with a linker in between, so it was called Merlinska. Merlin, for short. So Merlin magically moved a whole bunch of other proteins over to the membrane. This was a novel and neat way of causing the translocation of things that were interacting with 
whatever was binding to, to, to RAS. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of cool. You could send it to different locations and ask if you were changing the signaling characteristics, if you were changing what in fact was being seen to bind. Because one of the problems with immunoprecipitations is that if you do your IP long enough, you'll pull down just about anything. Um, and this was a way of almost fractionating, if you like, into different compartments by a different postal code. So if I'd stuck, other than a meristillation sequence, I could have done a lot more. And instead, I became focused on getting it done, getting my PhD written up and out. It was a great time to play around. I should have played around. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any like advice for people, you know, maybe more senior PhDs or postdocs about the next step, like choosing a career? Well, one of the things I thought about when I, when I was asked to do this was, my wife said to me, well, they want to know what made you successful. And I, the, the only thing I can suggest that at the end of the day is important is not only to excel at whatever it is you're doing, but to do the right thing for the right reason. Um, that's really important. Uh, and it's not as trivial as it might sound. It occasionally means doing things that people don't want you to do because it's not popular to do. But at the end of the day, you're going to be judged by virtue of why you did something. So when I took out the patent on SARS, I did so so that we could maintain control of it and it wouldn't fall to the same way of what had happened to Hep C. So I didn't do it so that we would control it. I wanted to create a pool so that access was available. For 24 hours, apparently, I was the most hated person in China because Newsweek China published with my face on it that this man had taken out a patent on SARS. And they didn't understand the strategy. It's not a small country. And you don't want to be hated by this many people. <laughs> so it's not always popular. I had the uh, uh, Perry Kendall, I guess, the, the um, spokesperson for the government, the medical spokesperson for government. He got on the phone and just yelled at me because he didn't understand why it was being done either. So I tried to explain, and he ended up hanging up confused. Um, you've got to do the right thing for the right reason. If your reasons are sound, at the end of the day, people will come back into the room and go, good on you. <laughs> but if your reasons aren't sound, I'm going to guarantee you, you'll be the first person they, they skewer against the wall. So. We have time for maybe one more question, and then we really got to wrap up. Anyone? Yeah, in the back. What's your opinion on the role of the government, both federal and provincial, on supporting and developing research, especially when it comes to things like cancer research? So while I may not resemble one, I am a cheerleader. Uh, (laughs) Okay, I I got this little first there. My, my daughter tells me uh, I, I'm intimidating at the best of times, and a gay friend of mine said I was too ugly to be gay, so I, I say I'm a cheerleader because it makes people laugh. I'm a cheerleader in the sense that I was just next door talking to a group from China, and they were here to look at potential investments in BC and possibly setting something up. I don't see uh, a distinct role for myself versus government versus other. I, I see this as a continuum and I'll play a role anywhere on that continuum that I have to. As far as I'm concerned, this is something that I truly believe in, and so I participate any given time that it's asked of me. Yeah. How's that for cheerleading? (laughs) 
All right, join me in thanking Sam Abraham for his wonderful forward to seeing you in the elevator. I'll yep. get my pitch ready. And if you have any other questions, feel free to come upstairs and rattle my cage on the 14th floor. Thank you. Yeah. You can come out to the barbecue later. It's going to be Do the right thing for the right reason. I don't think I could have said that better myself. That's the interview with Sam Abraham, Vice President of Research at BC Cancer. It was, uh, I mean, that was really interesting. He actually came out to the barbecue afterwards. I don't know if you caught that at the end, but uh, we ended up chatting for another, I don't know, probably another hour or so about um, IP and you know, how, how do we go forward with this? How, how can we teach graduate students to think about IP or undergrads, just scientists in general, to, to think about how they can take their IP and, and then do something meaningful with it, not just, you know, let it fall to the wayside, like he was talking about the hep C patents and how that essentially stopped therapies from being developed. You know, this is this is definitely one of those things that we we just aren't taught in most, or at least I wasn't ever taught in my undergraduate or graduate degrees. And it is something important for for changing, you know, the world around us. Well, and that's it for tonight. Subscribe to us on RSS or iTunes or something so that you can listen to the next interview because the next interview is actually going to be really, really good. All right, take it easy. And then that should be it, man. All right, maybe, maybe I can sing for you a little bit. Old Man River